This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. According to a report released today from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, outside special interest groups spent a record $93 million in statewide political races during the fall 2022 election. By far the most spending was on the governor's race, with $79 million spent on that race alone, according to the Associated Press. This tops the record set back in 2018 of $62 million of spending and continues the trend of outside political spending increasing dramatically over the last decade. The groups spending the most were the Democratic and Republican Governors Associations, which spent $20 million and $15 million, respectively. The State Justice Department released a statement today warning Wisconsinites about a fraud scam that has been targeting seniors across the state. The scam consists of someone pretending to be law enforcement, calling a senior and claiming that a family member has been involved in a car accident and needs cash for bond payment. A fake bond agent then comes to the senior's residence and collects the money. The DOJ reports that over $100,000 has been lost by Wisconsin seniors in recent weeks and cautions people to verify the identity of anyone asking for payment. The DOJ also asks that anyone who has been affected by the scam please contact law enforcement as their investigation into the scam is ongoing. Several Wisconsin mayors, including Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, have signed on to a letter calling on the United States Senate to ban assault weapons and expand background checks. The letter, which was distributed by the United States Conference of Mayors, urges the Senate to pass gun control bills already passed by the House. Furthermore, President Biden has already signaled that he would sign the bills if they reached his desk, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. In addition to Madison, mayors from Racine, Milwaukee, and Kenosha also have signed the letter. Alder Matt Fair announced in a statement today that he plans on running for the District 20 seat on the Madison Common Council. Alder Fair is currently serving in that seat after he was appointed following the departure of Alder Orburus and had previously been elected to that seat four times from 2011 to 2019. Fair said that he looks forward to learning what issues were important to residents of District 20 as he campaigns for the seat. The Common Council elections will be held next spring. Continuing with the upcoming spring election, former Monona Alder Christy Goforth has announced her intentions of running for Monona mayor over the weekend. Goforth has previously run for the position, losing to current mayor Mary O'Connor in 2021. If elected, Goforth would be Wisconsin's first indigenous mayor, according to Madison 365, as she is a member of the Sioux tribe of Chippewa Indians. And now on to today's top stories. Lead poisoning can carry a bevy of health issues, especially for young children, and officials in the town of Middleton are concerned with lead emissions from the nearby Middleton Municipal Airport and the effects it may be having on children living nearby. Earlier today, the County Health Department presented a new report finding no evidence that the airport is contributing to higher risks of lead poisoning in children. But one town of Middleton official says that the report doesn't go far enough. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. The Middleton Municipal Airport, also known as the Maury Airfield, sits next to the Middleton Firefighters Memorial Park. Within two miles of four schools and three other public parks and recreational areas, 
The airport, which sits in the town of Middleton but is operated by the city of Middleton, is mostly used for smaller aircraft than those at the Dane County Airport and as a flight school. But even those small aircraft use leaded fuel to fly, leading to at least one town official to worry about potential lead poisoning from those planes. While lead-laden fuel has been banned for cars and other ground vehicles since the 1980s, it is still allowed in aircraft, mostly because the options for non-leaded aircraft fuel is limited. Leaded aviation fuel is the largest remaining aggregate source of air lead emissions in the United States. That's according to a 2021 study by the federal EPA. Morgan Finke with Public Health Madison-Dane County says that any exposure to lead can have consequences for young children. It can cause kind of a wide range of, of impacts on the body, including disabilities and behavior problems. And even with low levels of, of lead in the blood, uh, it can result in, in a, a myriad of issues, including, you know, maybe hearing problems or anemia. The county health department released a new report today on the prevalence of lead poisoning surrounding Maury Airfield. And Finke says that the results look promising. And we didn't see any evidence that the Middleton Municipal Airport has contributed to elevated blood lead levels in the surrounding community. I should mention that, of course, we understand this finding is limited by the data that is available to us. The report draws on already existing data on blood lead levels in children in Dane County, in the town of Middleton, and living within one kilometer of Maury Field. It finds that between 2010 and 2020, only one child that lived close to the airport was found to have lead poisoning, and only three children living near the airport had elevated blood lead levels. Comparatively, nine children in all of Middleton got lead poisoning during the same time frame, and over 600 children got lead poisoning in all of Dane County. The report did not conclusively say that these cases of lead poisoning were from airborne lead emissions and could have stemmed from a variety of sources, like lead paint chips and lead-soldered water pipes. But the data could be flawed. The report only draws on existing data provided by the state health department, which only requires blood lead testing under specific circumstances. That means that unless a child is known to live in a house built before 1950 or is enrolled in Medicaid, they probably have never had their blood lead levels tested. Today's report from the county is at odds with a previous report commissioned by the town of Middleton in 2019. That study was commissioned by Cynthia Richson, the chairperson of the town of Middleton, who has made airborne lead pollution from Maury Field one of her top issues. In that study, consultants found that Maury Field is responsible for over 30% of all airborne lead emissions in Dane County, and that the Middleton Airport generates around 217 pounds of lead pollution each year. That study was conducted by Trinity Consultants, a group that often helps the EPA with their own airborne lead studies. Richson says that the new report not only did not have a large enough sample size of blood lead testing, but it also barely acknowledged what they already knew and were looking for the wrong data. And I think they're missing the point that uh, the way the planes fly from the city of Middleton's Municipal Airport are at very low altitudes repetitively. And the topography to the west, where 70% or more of these planes take off to, are sometimes 
well, frequently going over our heads at 400 feet, 500 feet, 600 feet, in other words, very low altitudes. And that's, I understand, referred to as below the mixing height, which means essentially absent unusual weather conditions. As the plane is flying, the very small lead particles coming out of the exhaust pipe are dropping along the flight path. Richson says that on top of more blood lead level testing, the county should create a full report of lead emissions out of the airport. Finke says that the county health department recognizes that there is still more work to be done and that this report is only the first step in a larger process. We're very aware of the seriousness of this issue and, and of course, support all of the ongoing work that's happening both locally and federally to address it as, as a larger big picture issue. Uh, we also appreciate that those residents have come forward sharing their concerns. This report by no means indicates that, you know, we're done caring about lead exposure, or we're done caring about this issue. Today's Public Health Department meeting is still ongoing as of broadcast. The board could decide to accept the report or to ask for additional information. Meanwhile, Richson says that this is still a top issue. She'll be speaking at a national conference on airborne lead pollution at Boston College next week, bringing the small town issue to a national stage. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. It has been 51 years since passenger rail service operated here in Madison, but a study by the city of Madison is trying to change that. And at a meeting this Wednesday, the city hopes to hear input from residents. WORT's Antonio Barreras Lozano tells us more. The city of Madison is launching a study that could determine the location of a new Amtrak station in the city. The location could potentially become a part of Amtrak's Hiawatha line. Here is Madison transportation planner Philip Gritzmacher Jr. talking more about this project. This would be an extension of the Hiawatha, which is one of the most successful rail lines in the country. So it would connect Madison up to Chicago and Milwaukee, and, and a few stops in between with the existing Hiawatha with four round trips. The study plans to look at six locations around the city to determine which would be a more suitable candidate. The six candidates were not selected at random. They are locations that have been singled out and recommended by previous studies done by the city. Gritzmacher Jr. says that although the city is pulling from previous studies, they are approaching this project with fresh eyes. Uh, on that end, uh, you know, we had the high-speed rail effort uh, from 2010, and we aren't necessarily just picking up there from there and, and uh, identify, using that station that we identified it then. We are going to be completely kind of starting fresh and uh, taking a look at this through the perspective of the uh, Hiawatha extension and the operational needs associated with that. It's not just about what location is most convenient. Ben Lyman, a transportation planner with the Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization, says that a railway station has to take into account multiple logistical and mechanical considerations. Um, the, you know, the trains need somewhere that is relatively uh, straight and long to be able to pull up to the, the boarding platforms. Um, and so you know, it can't be on a, a really sharp bend. Um, clearly, you know, can't have the train blocking major roads while it's you know, loading or unloading. So there are only so many locations where it could really go. Additionally, Lyman says it's important that the train station is accessible. It'll be critical that it has really good um, connections to, to local transit service so that not everybody has to drive a private automobile um, to, to get there. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be important for it to be on bus routes, for it to be 
accessible by low low traffic stress bus, uh, I'm sorry, bike um, facilities and, and connected to the pedestrian network. But before the study is officially launched, the city is planning a meeting that will take place Wednesday, December 7th. The goal is to introduce residents to the study and to get input. Chris Mocker Jr. again. Uh, the purpose of the meeting is really to introduce the community to the station identification study, uh, where we are trying to figure out the, the preferred location for a, a, a future passenger rail station. So it's to, it's to introduce the study. It's also gather feedback and figure out uh, what the community's preferences are. But more than anything, Gritzmacher Jr. sees this as an opportunity for the Madison community to voice their opinions and shape their city. I hope that we have good attendance. I think that this is a great opportunity for the community to voice its, its opinion and really influence the process. There are no preconceived notions of where the station's going to be. So I think that it's really, really important that the community uh, voices its opinion either by emailing me or attending one of the meetings. Uh, we're, we're really compiling all this feedback and trying to figure out where the best location is going to be. So that's, that's the number one thing I would relay is get involved and, you know, be heard. This is an opportunity to be heard. The meeting will start at 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday and can be attended in person at the Madison Municipal Building. Here, residents can talk to Amtrak staff, city staff, the consulting team, and the mayor. Madison residents can also register and attend the meeting through Zoom. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Antonio Barreras Lozano. After a chilly weekend, winter is almost here and we may even see some snow in the coming days. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more. The weather outside is frightful, but don't forget, holidays will make the times delightful. Today, parts of Madison saw some rain and snow shower mixes earlier in the morning with cool wind and high cloud cover. But now into tonight, we will likely not be seeing that as much. Only a 5% chance of this occurring. Current temperatures are sitting at 33 degrees with low wind speeds of about 3 miles per hour coming from the north. We are seeing this recurring theme of real field temperatures feeling cooler due to wind speed and cloud coverage. Thankfully, today isn't as low, just feeling a few degrees cooler than actual temperatures outside. A trough of low pressure will be moving in with a cold front coming through. Moving into tonight, we're going to continue with these cloudy conditions and low wind speeds, but moving overnight, temperatures will drop into the 20s and chances for snow will continue to rise overnight, but it is likely we will not be getting any accumulation. Moving into Tuesday, low temperatures will continue. The high will be 38 degrees with continued cloudy conditions all throughout the day. With high humidity, there will be variable chances to see some precipitation tomorrow. The NAM model shows precipitation, while the GFS are still showing to be dry. But again, precipitation is possible. Overnight will drop to the mid-20s again with light and variable wind speeds. Here comes the sun. Wednesday is looking to be variably cloudy, meaning we should see the sun peeking through those clouds. Wednesday is looking to reach the low 40s, which to us Midwesterners during this time feels like summer. Variable and light winds will continue with chances for some precipitation or snow later into the evening. Temperatures will be dropping down to the low 20s. Thursday's temperatures will likely stay in the low 40s, but will feel cooler due to cloudy and windy conditions. In addition, there will be a chance of precipitation throughout the day and snow later into the evening. It's indicated that we could possibly see anywhere from 1 to 3 inches of snow on Thursday night if these conditions hold true. This is your weekly update of sunrise, which is at 7.14 a.m., and sunset, which is at 4.22 p.m. Did you know, despite these cold, gloomy, and somewhat snowy conditions, that it's not winter yet? 
The winter solstice doesn't begin until December 21st and goes all the way until March 20th. The 21st of December is the first astronomical day of winter in the Northern Hemisphere, but for the Southern Hemisphere, it is their first day of summer. And here's a fun fact. Even though the winter is so freezing, the sun appears bigger. But why? The way the Earth is positioned on its axis during the winter months make the sun closer to the Earth, leaving the sun to look bigger when we get to see it. But a reminder, do not look directly into the sun. Reporting from Madison, this was your WORT weather report. And I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. Just two weeks into the school year, Senate Middle School Principal Jeffrey Copeland was fired with little explanation as to why. After bits of information became public and after parents and staff continuously called for him to be reinstated, the Madison School Board voted last week to reinstate Dr. Copeland as the head of the school. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Sp- Scott Gerard, K-12 education reporter with the Capital Times, about what led to his firing and why the board decided to reinstate him. This is just a portion of their conversation, so you can hear the full interview online at wortfm.org. So, Scott, this story has been going on for a, a little while now, since basically the beginning of the school year, and you've been covering it uh, along the entire way. So just to, to stir things off here, why don't you give us just a, a brief timeline of what's going on over at Senate Middle School? Sure thing. Uh, so back in September, uh, Principal Jeffrey Copeland uh, was fired, and, and that news came out uh, late September, September 27th, I think I have in my head. Um, and that was about two weeks after an email to families from the district that announced uh, the principal who was hired this summer uh, was out on leave uh, and would be for an undetermined amount of time. Uh, so that was late September. And a couple of days after his firing uh, became public was the monthly school board meeting. And teachers and community members from Senate, uh, a couple parents and uh, a whole bunch of teachers showed up uh, or wrote to the board to really passionately uh, defend uh, the print, their, their then former principal uh, for his, the way he had changed the culture at the school early on. So he actually only worked at the school as principal during the school year for about eight school days. Uh, before he was put on leave. Uh, and so despite that short time, teachers really passionately spoke about the hope he had brought them and their students and the work he had done. Um, so that was late September. Uh, the uh, the staff who supported him you know, kept talking and, and showing up to, to future school board meetings to talk about the importance of getting him back. In uh, early November, I and some other news outlets got the response to an open records request, which revealed the reason that Copeland was fired. Uh, Until that point, the district had been mum on why he was fired, and there were some rumors out there and everything, but nothing had been confirmed. And so that revealed that there was a voicemail he had left seemingly accidentally on a job candidate's uh, voicemail after trying to set up a meeting with that job candidate, uh, in which he made some comments that the district considered unacceptable um, and said went against the district's vision of creating an anti-racist school culture. So that voicemail uh, and the district's termination letters uh, were then out in public and we were waiting on the results of an appeal that Copeland had fired uh, with a grievance uh, against the district over his firing. And so 
Finally, this uh, last week, uh, the school board, the, the district initially denied his grievance and, and he appealed to the school board. So finally, last week, there was a meeting set on uh, that first meeting was Tuesday and it was just an entirely closed session was what was on the notice. And that meeting uh, broke out, uh, adjourned uh, about 15 minutes in and with with little explanation. And so then another meeting got scheduled for Friday and that meeting included a vote in open session on his reinstatement. And that vote came about after another two hours of the board meeting in closed session. Uh, and the board ended up voting unanimously to reinstate Jeffrey Copeland as the principal at Senate uh, after about a little over two months uh, since he had been fired. Now, moving over to what happened on Friday, like you said, uh, the school board uh, unanimously voted to reinstate Copeland as the principal of Senate Middle School. How did they sort of come about that decision? And and what did, uh, is there any sort of conditions to his rehiring? Yeah. So how they came about that decision, you know, we it was a closed session. And so we have limited details on what conversation they had around this. Um, and that's uh, one of the reasons that uh, elected bodies are allowed to go into closed session under Wisconsin law is to discuss the employment status of, of a district employee. And so those conversations happen behind closed doors. Um, there will be some uh, meeting minutes at some point that could become public, but uh, I don't imagine they'll be too detailed. Um, so we, we may not know everything that went into their decision. So what we saw uh, on Friday, again, after about two hours sitting outside in the hallway while they met, uh, and that group included a, a whole lot of Senate staff members, um, about a dozen, who were there waiting to hear the ultimate decision. But after the closed session ended, uh, the uh, board invited all the people who were there in if they wanted to watch because it was an open session again. Um, and so we saw them vote unanimously on a couple of items. Uh, the first was to reinstate him. And then the second was a few um, conditions that uh, were sort of viewed as disciplinary measures uh, rather than termination, right? And so uh, the discipline included a retroactive suspension. So they, uh, the school board supported giving him back pay with an exception for three weeks of that back pay, which basically serves as a suspension. Uh, and then also a rip, written reprimand and some and some required professional development for him. Uh, and so those were viewed as the disciplinary measures uh, that were taken uh, by the board. But again, we don't really know a lot about the why uh, they voted to, to make the decision they did um, because we weren't able to be in there for the discussion about it. The board did not discuss the issue at all before its vote in open session. It simply held the vote and uh, the votes and then adjourned. I've been talking with uh, Scott Gerard, the K-12 through reporter with the Cap Times, uh, about the reinstatement of Dr. Jeffrey Copeland as principal of Senate Middle School. Now, Scott's been covering this story for, for months now, so you can go and read all of the details over at captimes.com. Scott, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. The time now is just about 6.33, and you're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us.
It's Monday, which usually means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, though, Dylan is out, so News Director Sholly Pittman stepped in for the week ahead in local government. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Dylan Brogan is out again this week, but with me as always is Brenda Conkle. How are you, Brenda? Doing good. How are you doing today? You know, I'm a little under the weather, but I'm okay. Thanks for asking. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> Let's dive right into it. Uh, happening now, today, on the county level at 5.30 p.m., um, the City County Homeless Issues Committee is meeting virtually to talk about all sorts of unhoused and homeless issues. What's on their agenda? Um, yeah, so they have Olivia Perry, uh, Perry, who is from Dane County, who will be coming in. Um, she's from the Planning and Development Department, and so will be talking about um, the affordable housing strategies that the county has for housing options outside the city of Madison. Um, they've been working really hard on that for a couple years and doing some really good work, so she'll be talking to them about that, and then they will also be talking about their work plan for next year, um, and that will be uh, the county staff person, Christina Dukes, as well as Sarah Lim from the city of Madison will be helping with that. Then they'll be deciding if they're going to stay virtual or in person, and then they have a couple items on their agenda that are actually uh, referred to them from the city council. So one of them would be accepting uh, over $2 million for youth homelessness programs. It's a special demonstration project. Um, it's money from HUD. It would go over, I believe, the next two years. Um, and so that, that money, um, if that gets accepted by the city council, will be going out to a couple of different organizations. And then they're also approving the $150,000 for the consultants to come in and help us with a plan to um prevent and end homelessness for the community. We usually do those plans about every five to seven years. And so the, the, our new one will be coming up next year. And also happening today right now, uh, because it started at 530 on the county level, is the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County. And they have some interesting stuff, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are tackling one of these earlier in the show. Um, so they do have their regular updates on communicable diseases, and then they have uh, a report on childhood lead poisoning risk from the Middleton Municipal Airport. And then there's a whole bunch of licensing fees type things that they'll be working on. Um, they have to have a resolution at the county, a resolution at the city, and a resolution at the board because it is a city-county board. And then they will also be looking at a few other Board of Health uh, resolutions that they can just do on their own. So some... Um, funding for HIV outreach education and testing, some support for um, pregnancy and children under the age of four, as well as they will be looking at some transfers and end of the year type uh, budget items. Tuesday, tomorrow at the county level, 1215, the Criminal Justice Council Racial Disparities Subcommittee will be meeting for a host of items. Yep, they will be um, getting an update about the criminal justice initiative as well as um, some of their membership. They'll be looking at some of their membership and then they um, will get an update from the Office of Justice Reform and Equity and then they will be getting our update on the Community Restorative Court project. So uh, lots of updates from various things that they're working on sort of individually and, and they all come together and take a look at it. So and this is the Racial Disparity Subcommittee so they'll be looking at it particularly through that lens. Tuesday, tomorrow at 5 p.m., the Community Development Block Grant Commission is meeting. And what are they looking at there, Brenda? 
Um, they'll be looking at the recommendations for 2023 for their, all of their funding. So this is sort of, you know, they've been having presentations and they went through a whole scoring process and now they are going to be making their final recommendations for funding. Okay. And then uh, 5.30 tomorrow, the Public Works and Transportation Committee is having a hybrid virtual in-person meeting. It's in person at the Align Energy Center. Uh, what are they talking about? Yeah, so the, they have a few mundane things that they're going to do. They'll be doing a fund transfer uh, for the highway capital road projects, and then they will be doing a change order for the chain link fence and gate installation out at uh, how Highway 12 and 18. I'm pretty sure that that's for the landfill. Okay. And what's a change order? A change order is usually um, when they have contracted with um, construction companies to do a certain amount of work. And when they um, come in either under or over or behind on time, then they do a change order to try to change the contract, either to give them additional money, give them additional time or change some other thing in the contract. And so pretty routine, mundane things going on at Public Works and Transportation. (laughs) Okay, well, that's this week in um, in procedure. Uh, Wednesday, five fifteen, the Land Conservation Committee is also having a hybrid meeting, and they'll be talking about some stuff with that cap. Yes, um, they have some contract extensions for the Department of Ag, Trade, and Consumer Protection. They also have um, some county-funded contract extensions. So it sounds like they're doing a lot of, again, end-of-the-year type of cleanup things that they need to do. And then they have the WDNR um, PFAS Contamination and Monitoring Update. And that will be a joint presentation with um, ENER. And ENER is um, Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, as well as the... Um, LWC, which is Lakes and Watershed Commission. So those are also meeting um, at 5.30 and 5.45. So there's some sort of joint uh, committees going on. If they put an N before it, it would be neener. Natural. It would neener. <laughs> oh, uh, missed opportunity. 5.30 on Wednesday, the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee is having a hybrid meeting, and they have a lot on their agenda, and a lot of it has to do with Pheasant Branch Conservancy. Yep, they have a bunch of donations and grants and stuff coming in for that. They're also going to be approving the crop leases for 2023. Um, that's for leases of county land for farmers to to build to um, grow their crops on. And then again, they have of the um, PFAS update as well as a lake management quarterly report, and that also will be joined with the Lakes and Watershed Commission, which is at 5:45. Moving along on the county level to Thursday at 12.15, the Criminal Justice Council is having a virtual meeting. Yep, they have um, dashboard phase one. Um, So they're going to be looking at dashboards that they're going to be having published to the um, Criminal Justice Council website. They'll also be getting a presentation from Chair Miles. It's on OA28, and I don't know what that is. It's a it's a resolution or a ordinance that's changed that's going through the county board. It may have to do with the uh, makeup of the Criminal Justice Council, but I don't know. And again, there was no link, so I couldn't click on it. They'll also be getting a presentation from about the CARES program, um, and that will be um, from the City of Madison Fire Department. And then they'll be getting a, a new uh, introduction from the Madison Police Department's Data Reform and Innovation Police Director, um, Dr. Eliezer Lee Hunt. 
All right, let's turn around and uh, speaking of the city, let's look at the city. So today um, at 5 p.m., the Transportation Policy and Planning Board is having a meeting where they have some ordinance changes going on to make uh, transportation more efficient. That's the goal. Yep, the two two big things they have on their agenda is the Transportation Demand Management Program. Uh, there's some ordinance changes that they're going to be doing there. And then they also have the Overlay District that is supposed to help have more development around transit-oriented development nodes that they have designated throughout the city. So yeah, that, that happened at 5 o'clock. It may still be going. At 6 p.m., the Humanitarian Award Commission uh, for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is meeting. There's no agenda posted, but this is usually where they um, decide who this award goes to, right? Exactly, yeah. And there is a lot of agendas that were not posted this morning when I was trying to do the blog, including the Common Council agenda was not available in Legistar. So there's a whole bunch of weirdness that went on this week, and I don't know if someone was out sick or um, something happened in the clerk's office, but um, there's quite a few missing agendas. Well, that's not good. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Let's fix that, please. Okay. Well, on the city level, we'll make do. On the city level, uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m., the Finance Committee is meeting. So, yeah, this is a special meeting. Um, Usually when they do bonds for any type of projects within the city of Madison, they have to have a special meeting right before the council meeting because they um, get bids throughout the day and then they make a decision in the evening right before the city council meets. And so this is a special meeting of the finance committee. Um, This is still by title only. You'll see all kinds of blanks in it, but they are looking at bonds for the sewer system revenue and refunding bonds. Uh, So there'll just be a real quick meeting and usually lasts about five minutes and then they go on to the council meeting. That is interesting. Okay. Well, speaking of the council meeting, that happens at 6.30 tomorrow. And like you said, there's no agenda posted, but you did manage to find stuff. They have a lot of stuff. If if you sneak around in the websites, you can find it, but it was really not the normal thing. You couldn't click anywhere where it said agenda. Um, But yeah, there'll be a poetry presentation tonight by the Poet Laureate, um, Angie Trudeau. Chudel Vasquez. Who is also um, a WRT host, I just have to say. All right. Yeah. So she'll be she'll be doing a presentation. The, those are always kind of my favorite nights of the council when I was on there. Um, a little bit of something different. And that, that's really nice. There's a couple honoring resolutions for the Jeff Clay Erlinger Civility Award, as well as thanking Alder Syed Abbas. He's uh, resigned from the city council. So they will be doing that. A whole bunch of new alcohol licenses um, and then a few zoning things. The biggest one probably is the one at 415 North Lake Street. Um, So that's the parking ramp where they're going to do some housing and other things there. There's a couple items on the agenda for that. Um, And then some other things that might be of interest. There is um, they'll be updating some of the ordinances to have more gender inclusive language. Um, And then they are looking at having alder terms instead of everybody be elected every two years, that half of them would be elected um, during even years and half of them would be elected during odd years, depending upon the district number. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. I believe that it passed unanimously at the Common Council Executive Committee. I do think it may have to go out to referendum to make that change. And so you may see that um, they're not anticipating that the changes would happen until 2025. Um, And then there's a whole bunch of items on there for affordable housing projects, which is great. Also that youth... um, demonstration project with the $2 million from HUD that is also on their agenda as well as the money 
for the community plan to prevent and end homelessness. There's a couple um, fees or um, that are on your bills um, if you pay property taxes or water bills. So there's an urban forestry special charge as well as a resource recovery special charge, which I believe is a recycling charge. Um, and then there's a TIF that they'll be giving out as, as well as then they're also going to be um, looking at two five-year contracts for some of the senior level folks at the city. One will be for the transit chief operating officer and the other is for the director of human resources. And then don't forget, they are finally going to be doing that, uh, implementing the Metro network redesign. So that probably will get a little bit of interest tonight or Tuesday night. Yeah bunch of transit on the agenda yes and then wednesday on the city level at 6 p.m uh something that is ongoing is the lake monona waterfront ad hoc committee to kind of beautify and kind of redo the john nolan drive into the city so what are they talking about then so we'll be getting two informational presentations. One's from the Clean Lakes Alliance, um, and then the other one is from the Ho- from Ho Chunk representatives. So they'll be getting two informational presentations, and then they'll be talking about a public event that they're going to be having and where they're going to have it. Well, that about does it for this edition of Forward Lookout. We've had Brenda Conkle previewing this week in local government as she does every Monday, and you can find more, even more meetings um, and more about them at forwardlookout.com. I learned a bunch of new things. This Friday is the anniversary of the founding of the Knights of Labor in 1869. The Knights fought the railroad baron Jay Gould and for the eight-hour workday. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. This Friday, December 9th, is the anniversary of the founding of the Knights of Labor. In 1869, the Knights promoted solidarity of all workers, white or African-American, skilled or unskilled men or women. Their motto was, an injury to one was the concern of all. The Knights of Labor, KFL, was a labor union that also opposed the wage system and originally contained a deeply religious strain. Their class unity contrasted sharply with that day's trade unions that were usually composed of skilled white male workers, narrowly focused on maintaining their privileged position. The organization was fairly small with limited influence, but that changed rapidly with the start of the Depression of 1882. The Depression led to widespread unemployment and declining wages. The spark for the fight back was a spontaneous walkout by railroad workers. In February 1885, a 5% wage cut was added to a previous 10% reduction for shopmen on the Missouri Pacific Railroad, the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas, and the Wabash, the lines composing Jay Gould's Southwest System. The Wabash shopmen struck the day after they received the wage cuts, and the strike spread to the shopmen of the other Southwest roads. By the first week of March, the strike had spread to all the important shops in Missouri and Texas, 10,000 miles of railroad. The shopman appealed to the engineers saying, for the sake of your family and ours, don't take out the engine. The tactic worked. On March 15, 1885, the Missouri Pacific retracted its cuts and agreed to other demands. The railroad workers on the Union Pacific, who were members of the Knights of Labor, sent $30,000 and an organizer to support the strike. So the Southwest System strikers quickly organized 30 locals with thousands of members. The railroads responded by firing Wabash shopmen. Then they closed the railroad shops and reopened them with 50 armed strikebreakers. So all the Knights of Labor on the Wabash struck. 
The workers on the rest of the Southwest system demanded support from their leaders who reluctantly instructed all their members not to handle Wabash rolling stock. The Southwest system was controlled by Jay Gould, perhaps the most hated of the robber barons of his day, faced with a strike that would equal the dimensions of the great 1877 railroad strikes and close down the entire system. Gould backed down. Gould met with the Knights Executive Board and advised the Wabash's general manager to agree to their demands. The manager reinstated the fired workers and promised that no official shall discriminate against the K of L. The result of these victories headlined across the nation was the sudden explosive growth of strikes and the Knights of Labor. On July 1, 1884, there were just over 71,000 members. A year later, there were over 111,000. By July 1st of 1886, there were nearly 730,000 members. The number of strikers in 1886 was nearly 500,000, triple the average number of the previous five years, and the number of businesses struck nearly quadrupled. The strikes were in every trade everywhere in the nation. Further strikes that had begun as defensive measures as the economy improved in 1886 became offensive strikes to improve wages and working conditions. Inevitably, this wave again involved the Southwest Railroad System workers who, after a series of provocations, struck in support of a fired worker on March 6th of 1886. More than 200,000 railroad workers struck in five states. The company fought back with strike breakers and armed forces. The workers responded by sabotaging the company's locomotive engines and rails. The fight reached its peak in East St. Louis, where on April 9th, deputies fired into a crowd of strikers, killing nine and wounding many. The infuriated crowd retaliated by burning the shops and the yards, destroying $75,000 of railroad property. The governor called out 700 National Guardsmen and put East St. Louis under martial law. The workers held out for two months, but were ultimately defeated. The strike was formally ended on May 4th, but most workers were refused their jobs, replaced by strike breakers. 1886 also saw a massive movement for the eight-hour day to culminate in a national strike on May 1st. The Knights' leadership opposed it, but the eight-hour day captured the imagination of its organizers and workers everywhere, who formed new locals at an amazing rate. In February alone, 515 new locals were formed. With the loss of the Southwest Railroad strike and the defeat of the eight-hour day after the Haymarket riot, the Knights' membership sharply declined. But their rank and file had shown the way for the IWW. With their one big union and slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all. Today, the nation again saw the railroad workers' just demands blocked by corporations making record profits for the wealthy few. Once again, the President and the Congress has done their bidding. A strike has been averted for now. For the past is and past, I'm Harry Richardson. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews just one new movie, but it's a good one. Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On, a new documentary about the life and times of that great 60s folk, folk singer who continues to inspire us today. I'm cutting my own way through my own day And all I dare say is it's my own She was always way ahead of the game. She knew she had a gift, and she was not afraid to share it, show it, be proud of it. When she played, it was hers. That was a clip from the trailer for the exceptional new documentary, Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On, directed by Madison Thomas. It's part of PBS's American Masters series. The film employs all the usual techniques, recent interviews with its subject, 
flattering, even wistful remembrances of her contemporaries and judicious use of reenactments. And of course, young or relatively young performers saying how influential that subject is, was to their career. No critics or exes need apply. But in this case, all those techniques are well used and pretty justified. Buffy St. Marie, singer, songwriter, activist, educator, artist, continues to be active and magnetic at 81, exuding a zest for life and carrying it on. The movie shows us Buffy's life and career from her early days to current times. She is one of the more enduring and fascinating singer-songwriters to emerge from the early 60s New York City folk coffeehouse scene. St. Marie was born in Saskatchewan of indigenous parents, but adopted when she was two or three and raised by white parents in Massachusetts. She said she grew up in a very white town where the only other Indian she knew was her letter carrier. She was told two things that should have destroyed her but didn't. That she couldn't do music because she didn't read music and there really are no Indians anymore. She persevered through a difficult childhood where she was abused and bullied. She credits her adopted mother as showing her the light and helping her go on to college. She attended the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Once there, she was encouraged by her dorm mom and the dorm women she played guitar for. She also met a fellow student who became a lifelong friend, Taj Mahal. She got a degree in teaching and philosophy, but ended up singing in New York coffee houses. She recalls Dylan hearing her in 1963 at an open mic at Gertie's Folk City performing her song, Now That the Buffalo Are Gone, and urging her to start playing at the popular Gaslight Cafe. There she was discovered by Vanguard Records, and the rest, as they say, is history. There are so many great stories in this documentary, Stories of her courage, activism, and enduring spirit. St. Marie was never concerned about her career. She wanted to make songs that would last generations, and she did. She also educated a couple of generations through her activism, first with the American Indian Movement, and then with other groups and foundations that helped Native Americans. She used her fame for good. She recalls being asked to appear on The Virginian, then a popular 60s TV western. She insisted that she would only do the show if all the cast members that played Native Americans were Native Americans. The show's producers initially resisted, saying, unbelievably, our makeup people are fantastic. They can turn a dog into a cat. She didn't back down, and they eventually gave in. She recalls being asked to be on Sesame Street in 1975. The show's PBS producers asked her if she would like to come on and do the alphabet with one of their puppet characters, like other popular figures were doing. She said, not really, but have you considered native programming? So, for the next five years, she became a semi-regular on the show, humanizing Native American people. In one episode, she took Big Bird to a reservation. In another segment that became famous, she breastfed her young son on television while Big Bird asked innocent questions. She was likely the first woman to breastfeed on national TV. She also talked of demanding work schedules, especially in the early days with Vanguard Records. St. Marie's schedule there was so grueling that fellow singer and friend Joni Mitchell went elsewhere. St. Marie spoke of later getting in touch with her native roots through taking gigs near reservations and visiting the people there. She recalled visiting a Cree reservation in Saskatchewan, Canada, and being adopted by a tribal couple. She noted how popular she was abroad when suddenly her popularity went way down in the U.S., she just thought it was part of a natural cycle. She didn't discover until years later that she was banned on the radio at the urging of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who wrote letters to DJs and stations all across the country, urging them not to play her songs. Back then, radio play was vital to making it as a musician. When she got her FBI file, she was surprised by how big it was. 
Hoover sought to punish her for her activism in the American Indian movement. Perhaps most important of all, she has lifted up the cause of missing and indigenous women. All in all, a fascinating biopic. I highly recommend it. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Antonio Barreras Lozano. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Wegihout produced this newscast. And Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have yourself a great night.